Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're continuing our Storyteller series. Our Storyteller series as we look at various parables from the New Testament. We're going to look at this very short parable here at the end of Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. Beginning in verse 28 and reading down through verse 32. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. Jesus tells this story. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we uh, consider these things, Lord, that you would uh, show us what it really looks like for change to happen in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would give us a sense of what it really means to respond in repentance. Lord, we all recognize, Lord, there are areas of our lives that need to be transformed and changed. Lord, we pray that you would use these words to bring us to a place where we would present our lives before you for those changes to take place, and Lord, we would experience your renewal and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a young man named John uh, received a parrot as a gift. The parrot had a bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. So John tried and tried to change this parrot's attitude by consistently saying only polite words. You know, he'd play some soft music, anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's mouth. Finally, John was fed up and he yelled at the parrot and the parrot yelled back. John shook the parrot and the parrot got angrier and even ruder. So John, in desperation, throws up his hands, grabs the bird and puts him in the freezer. For a few minutes, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly, there was total quiet. Not a peep was heard for over a minute. Fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, John quickly opened the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arms and said, I believe I may have offended you. My rude language and my actions, I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. John was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude and asked the parrot what had made such a dramatic change in his behavior. And he said, I was determined I would never change until I looked around the freezer and saw what you did to the turkey. (laughs) This parable is a parable about change. Ultimately, it's about the 
the real issue of repentance. And today, as we think about this issue of what it would take for you to change, maybe the best way that we could start the sermon before we think about the idea of repentance and real change in our life would be for you to identify, is there an area in your life, something that needs to change? You know, it's one thing to think theoretically about what a Christian doctrine means, what it means for our life to be changed, or for us to make changes in our life, or even the role we play in repentance. But I wonder if you would even just right now begin this moment with some honesty before God and just get in your mind something you know needs to change. An area where you've recognized that you want to see God do a transformative work in you could be something large maybe your overall understanding of what it means to be a person who follows after God maybe you've been sort of skeptical and you'd like to see a change in in really seeing and understanding God's word and devoting yourself to coming to a solid understanding of what it means to follow Christ Maybe it's some relational thing in your life or area of your life where you've experienced weakness and inability to change and you want to see changes take place. Maybe you know that you, there's an area of Scripture that teaches one thing, but you've been unwilling to adjust your life to God's teaching. What is it in your life that needs a change? Well, in this short parable that Jesus tells, we see a story about two sons with an important focus on the one who changes his mind. Through the story, Jesus is showing us an important picture of how God responds to repentance and why we should lean into thinking about the areas that God would most want to change in our lives. You see, we find in this parable how God responds to repentance in the danger that self-righteousness is to true Christian living. We discovered that God delights in repentance. I think if you come along as we think about the changes that need to take place in us, what we can see in this parable is that God actually delights in our repentance. He takes joy in repentance. And so let's look at this parable kind of in three ways. We're going to look at the parable the point, and then the principle that comes out of it that Jesus is showing. So in Matthew 21, 28 through 32, let's just think first of all about the basic facts of this parable. Jesus tells this simple story that has an obvious answer. Did you see the question in the middle of the parable? Which of the two did the will of his father? Now when you read it, you realize it's not a trick question. There's nothing particularly difficult, is there? about this parable there's nothing tricky about the conclusion to the story it isn't a parable with a big surprise turnaround ending like so many of them it's a story aimed to highlight the response of two sons to a father's command to go out and work in the vineyard so let's just summarize the two different responses of the sons we got the first son as we look at it he begins in disobedience and defiance, but he has a change of heart. He experiences remorse. Really, the word that is there that may say change of mind in your translation or change of heart, it really literally means a change of concern. All of a sudden, he stops just being concerned about what he had determined to do and is concerned about what his father had asked him, and he turns his attention to that and goes and does what his father had asked. 
He had a change of concern. So we have that. The second son, he begins in proclaiming obedience, at least externally and in word to the father. But for all of his promises and good start, he doesn't ever actually arrive in the vineyard to do the work. The question is then posed, which of the two did the will of the father? Like I said, it's not a trick question, and without having to work through all the questions of their own hearts and pride, the, the religious leaders who are listening to Jesus tell this story can see very clearly that the son who changed direction and went to work in the vineyard had, in fact, been the one who did the will of the Father. In a way, Jesus is doing spiritual combat here. He's having a contentious conversation with a group of religious leaders who have, by and large, rejected him as the Messiah and continually challenged him. And so he, he, he takes things out of the contentious turf onto something they can agree on. And here they can agree that the one who did the will of the Father was the son who actually turned from his initial concern to following what God had asked. So that's the parable as it sits. But what's the point? Well, we see the point begin to kind of develop in the, when we get into the second half of verse 31. Jesus says something that really is going to begin to turn up the heat in the parable. He says, truly I say to you. You notice he's not just talking to the general crowd. He's talking to those who have answered to the question. Now I want you to understand that this is a parable about you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. I mean, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Anybody else with me on that? You see, the point that Jesus is making in the context of this passage is that the religious leaders should repent of their prideful rejection, actually, of John the Baptist, and their prideful rejection of Jesus following John the Baptist, in the same way that the tax collectors and the prostitutes had repented of their wickedness. In fact, Jesus adds a bit of weight to that. If you look in the context of chapter 21, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that before this, you see the authority of Jesus is challenged. The authority of Jesus is challenged uh, uh, based on the fact that Jesus had gone in, uh, in and cleansed the temple. And he said, you guys have it all wrong, religiously speaking. What you're doing here isn't at all what the Father has asked for. This isn't what it looks like to prepare for the kingdom that God would deliver to you. And so they say, what, what authority do you have to do this sort of thing? And he decides, rather than answering the question directly, to make them respond to what they actually think about John the Baptist. You see, they had rejected John the Baptist. And so he puts it in their court, and he says, was he from heaven or not? Was John the Baptist legitimate? And of course, they won't answer the question because they're sort of caught. Because they didn't respond to John the Baptist's call and message. They had, in fact, rejected him. And so he adds a bit of weight to the punch and says to them, well, because of that, the tax collectors and the sinners are entering the, the kingdom ahead of these Pharisees while they sit by judgmentally and count on their own level of righteousness. You see, really what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up a really clear picture about those who find themselves on the inside of the kingdom. And he's asking the question, is it because of their righteousness or is it because of their repentance? 
How do you get into this kingdom of Jesus? Do you get into it through your actions of righteousness or because you've been willing to recognize how unrighteous you are and repent of your sin and entrust yourself to God's mercy? At the heart of the matter, it may seem to you and me that this is just a sort of age-old tussle between Jesus who loved sinners and the judgmental Pharisees who were unwilling to imagine that God could forgive all sorts of past failures and wanted to, to place some people permanently outside the kingdom. But there's a lot more at stake, actually, and Jesus is arguing for something very important. Really, the reason Jesus is making this issue with them at all is because the entire image and picture of God represented by these two different visions, the one Jesus is putting out about the need for repentance and God's willingness for them to be received, even tax collectors, even prostitutes, and the one of the Pharisees that believed God's blessing would only come through their particular righteousness, those are two very different visions about what God is like about who God receives, and about ourselves, about just how bad our sin is, how much rescue we actually need. And these two visions matter, and therefore Jesus is challenging these Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees, if we back up, they're, they're a dominant group among the religious leaders of the time, and they believed that God would send his Messiah, his king, to establish his kingdom when, when the people of Israel had set themselves apart enough and, and the land had been cleansed from unrighteousness like the occupying Romans. In fact, the word Pharisee means those who set themselves apart. So their whole idea was, let's get really righteous and cast all the sinners out of the land. And if we do that, God's blessing will return to us. That's how we're going to make this happen. The problem was, is they couldn't see their own unrighteousness. They couldn't see that their best efforts had fallen so far short of meriting God's blessing. And in fact, it had twisted them into a people who didn't even care about the real repentance that was taking place before their eyes as tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners were turning from their sin at the preaching of John the Baptist and preparing to walk in God's mercy, to walk in obedience to him. They couldn't celebrate that. They couldn't affirm that John's ministry had been, been from God. And so these Pharisees saw themselves as the first people in the door to, to set the pattern of strict religious adherence to the law. And they despised those who endangered their cause. Anybody who wasn't righteous enough, anyone who had a history, it was an effort to show God that they were serious enough about their righteousness and thus deserving of being the generation that saw God's kingdom ushered in. This is what they were after. But listen, here's what it led to. What it led to was a religious outlook that would rather transfer the sinners out of their life and out of the land instead of rejoice that God was transforming them by his grace. You see, this is what, where they were. They were so concerned with transferring the sinners out of their land and unconcerned with the powerful work of transformation that God was doing right before their very eyes. They couldn't even celebrate it. They were so convinced that they were right. What was interesting is, John the Baptist was the textbook example of the kind of righteousness the Pharisees were shooting for. He walked faithfully before God. He had been obedient. He, pro he proclaimed, he proclaimed, a message of repentance to prepare for the coming kingdom of God. 
He began to play the role of a prophet in the Judean wilderness just before Jesus' ministry. And he was saying that repentance was what God delighted in. He was saying repentance was what God delighted in. And guess what happened? Under his preaching and under his ministry, people from all sorts of backgrounds began to repent of their sin and be baptized out of all sorts of of sinful lifestyles and things going on. And he was proclaiming that through that they had the promise of forgiveness, freedom, and righteousness with God. But instead of rejoicing in the work that God was doing through John the Baptist, the Pharisees questioned him and rejected him. Perhaps it was because he preached the same message to them. This is what happens when we are religiously self-righteous. We want to hear other people's sins pointed out, but not our own. We're not open to considering that we might actually be sinners. He was saying, don't trust in your righteousness, but you also need to repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near. And for you to experience it, you're going to need to turn from your sin and entrust yourself to God. He had the audacity, John the Baptist did, to say that even the Pharisees themselves, in all of their best religious performance, needed really to repent of their sin if they wanted to enter the kingdom. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Matthew 3. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, we we have this picture of what happened when this large group of Pharisees came out to John the Baptist. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John said to them, You brood of vipers. That's a nice introduction, right? I thought about starting my sermons that way weekly. Welcome, brood of vipers. (laughs) And he asked the question, he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now hang on there. He's telling these Pharisees who believed that they had really gotten themselves all lined up, that they actually needed to repent that there were there were gaps in their obedience and he says don't presume to say to yourselves we have abraham as our father it doesn't matter what family you were born into for i tell you god is able to raise uh, from these stones to raise up children for abraham even now and this is the warning the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire i baptize you with water for repentance But he who is coming, pointing to Jesus, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why does he reference it that way? Well, he describes Jesus' work in their life as something that would really change them on a deeper level. And what they needed wasn't just a surface washing theoretically or symbolically to say that they had repented, but each of us need a deep change of heart that only God's Spirit can bring fire a transforming fire you see he says i'm just preparing you for when jesus comes and he says things really need to change but listen he has the power to do it and there would be those whose hearts would be prepared who would be ready to be invited into the change that Jesus was describing, and there would be those who self-righteously would reject him, like these Pharisees. And he says his winnowing fork is in his hand, 
The winnowing fork was used to separate the real wheat from the chaff. He has the ability to see what's real and what's not. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And this was a warning from John the Baptist to these Pharisees. So, so really, when you come back to this, this parable, Jesus is saying to these religious leaders that they would either repent of their reliance on their own thin righteousness, and like the tax collectors and harlots, they should repent of their sin, or they would realize one day that they were on the outside of God's work looking in. That their self-righteousness, their belief in their own goodness, would place them on the outside of God's significant work of salvation. This was a prospect that was made all the more serious in this passage with John the Baptist, as it says that Jesus is the one with this winnowing fork who will divide the chaff out from those who generally come to him in repentance and faith. In the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Ultimately, Jesus will judge them if they don't repent of their sin. And listen, the same prospect is at stake for us here this morning as we consider whether we have personally seen our sin and being willing to, to call it what it is and recognize that our only hope for salvation is in the hands of God's mercy. That only God's mercy can bring salvation to us, not our subtle improvements of righteousness, that, that all of us need the deep transforming work of God's spirit for salvation to really be experienced. And we only get it by calling on him by faith and turning to him in repentance. This is, this is what's at stake in Jesus' parable here about the two sons. You see, the Pharisees are the ones who are saying, oh yeah, we're ready for the kingdom, we'll be a big part of it. And now the kingdom is on their doorstep in the person of Jesus and they've rejected him. And yet all these people who seem to be religiously unconcerned are hearing this, seeing what Jesus is doing, humbling their lives, and they're really being changed. And these religious leaders are going to find themselves on the outside looking in. But there's an amazing grace here for us. It means that no matter who you are and where you've been, God is inviting you from where you're at right now to turn to Him and find that you can be on the inside of His transforming, changing work. That God delights in our repentance, and then in that moment, He begins to change us through the power of His Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I read the Gospels, I'm tempted to start arguing with the text and almost defend the Pharisees a little bit. Anybody else like that? Like, I mean, how could have they known? You know, I mean, they seem to be sincere. They're so serious about their religion. You know, he's sort of like thinking, well, how could they have known this is how God is, and that he delighted in repentance? Well, it seems all so new with Jesus, you know? Wasn't Jesus bringing something entirely foreign with all this speak of grace and forgiveness and a need for God's mercy and repentance? When in the Old Testament it all had been about law and righteousness and obedience and being particular? Isn't that what's going on? Especially when you consider all the talk about holiness and righteousness in the Old Testament? This emphasis on repentance and grace would have been quite the transition, wouldn't it? But actually, 
The truth is that that's not the case. Jesus' teaching on repentance here in Matthew 21 is nothing new. It's actually the result of what the Old Testament teaches. Jesus is showing them how to read the Old Testament in the history of Israel as a picture of Israel's need for repentance and real transformation of the heart. That there had been no times, really, where their increase in righteousness could bring about the blessing of God. And it was only in their willingness to say, God have mercy on us and submit themselves to Him and His transforming work that they ever experienced seasons of blessing. Jesus, without a doubt, in this parable, is pulling from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel as he tries to help the Pharisees see that God delights in repentance, and that he had always made that clear. In Ezekiel 33, 10 through 16, we have the clearest teaching on repentance in the Old Testament. It's going to be up here on the screen for you. And uh, I, I just kind of want to walk us through. Our, you know, here we are thinking about this main idea that God delights in repentance. Let's see it in the book of Ezekiel. Next slide. Ezekiel 33, beginning in verse 10. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking to the nation of Israel at a time when they have clearly plunged themselves in idolatry. They've been, they've been disbanded as a nation, carried off into exile in Babylon. They're scattered, and they wonder, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for us when we seem this far from God? And this is the answer. And you, son of man... There he's speaking to Ezekiel. Say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Do you hear the heart of that question? We've blown it so bad. We've screwed up so bad, we can even see that the things we're experiencing right now are unraveling. The consequences are worse than we expect. All we can imagine is we're just going to rot away. How can we live? Is there any hope? Verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. This is what he wants his prophet to say to them. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Isn't that powerful? This is, this is a look into God's heart. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Next slide. He continues to make the point. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness, listen now as he talks about repentance, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses, when he sins. When he turns away from God's law, that's what it means. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Keep going. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. Does that sound like the Pharisees? Right? Trusting in their own righteousness, even though there are plenty of injustices in them. None of the righteous deeds will be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, 
you shall surely die. Yet, if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Go back to that slide one more real quick. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He's done what is just and right. He surely, he shall surely live. Now this is, this is straight out of Ezekiel, right? <laughs> there's a, there's a, a clear word against self-righteousness and believing in our own righteousness. A clear statement that God delights in repentance. A clear understanding of how deep the work is that is needed and that when we turn from our wickedness, God is quick to receive us. It's an invitation. So Jesus, in this parable, is pulling from this idea. In case you missed what was being said there, here are a few things that you should have heard as we read through Ezekiel 33. First, you should have heard that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but takes pleasure when sinners repent and return to him. I mean, it is just such a clear statement. I can remember uh, a few months ago getting to that portion of Ezekiel and just stopping and thinking, that's an amazing thing for God to say. That is so contrary to how so many people think about God. That, he, that his, he's got a hair trigger for forgiveness. He delights in repentance. Consider that this is being said to Israelites in exile who have lived in idolatry, all sorts of rejection of God, even come under his judgment, been carried away into exile. God invites them from the depths of the hole in which they're in to return to a renewed relationship with him. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. And maybe you're here today and you feel buried under the hopelessness of your own sin and failure. Do you hear these words as an invitation to life? To return to the Lord and know that today God takes pleasure when sinners repent and return to him. You also should have seen that for those who are counting on their goodness, all of our previous acts of righteousness will not help us when we sin. All of our previous piling up of righteous and good things are of no value when we have sinned against God. Think of it this way. Do you remember a few years back uh, when Nick Walenda, you know, the, the trapeze, the, 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 what would you call that? Tightrope walker, yes. He decided he was going to cross the Grand Canyon on a tightrope. Uh, I remember watching it on television. They, they televised it, and he didn't have a net. He didn't have any security or anything going on, at least that I could see. Maybe he was hiding it. I don't know. But uh, he decided to walk across this tightrope, right? And it's, uh, you know, it's stretched across this vast portion of the Grand Canyon. And uh, Nick Walenda is out there, you know, with his pole and making his way across and, and going through there. Um, and I think most of us probably felt like he would make it, right? <laughs> like, they're not going to televise this guy falling to his death in, Grand, in the Grand Canyon. He must be really confident he's going to get across there. But there's some tension there, isn't there? There's some tension. The tension is high because there is no space for a mistake. There's no space for a mistake. And in a sense, the picture that is being painted here in, in Ezekiel about those who trust in their own righteousness, the way the Pharisees did there, us, if we are trusting in our own goodness, is that there's no place for a mistake. That for all the righteous steps that you take, there's only one uh, that would cause a disaster. 
It only takes one step for disaster to take place. And this is what's being highlighted. That, that, that if we count on our own righteousness, we have to be perfectly righteous. And God's, God knows that we would be hopeless. All of your previous acts of righteousness will not help you when you sin. No matter how many steps you feel you've gone, when the foot slip, slips, it no longer matters how many were positive. The question is, have you been willing to repent of trusting in your own righteousness to receive God's genuine forgiveness? Well, then another thing you should have seen in that passage is that all of your previous acts of wickedness will not be remembered when you truly repent. It was striking in the passage to hear, uh, hear this, this idea come out that none of the sins, verse 16, that he has committed shall be remembered against him. Could you imagine that? This idea that right now before God in your life, it's possible for God to choose not to remember any of your past sins. If you have ever felt the weight and burden of your sin, this is a delight. <laughs> to know that before God you can be forgiven in such a complete and powerful way that God does not look at you through your sin, but He has erased them in His forgiveness as you've come to Him in genuine repentance and faith. This is who God is. This is how He saves His people. It is clear that God pardons the repentant and punishes the sinner even when the sinner has done a lot of previous righteousness so because we are all sinners repentance is the point of entry and the pattern of genuine spiritual life this is what this parable is about we have two sons one that trusts in his own righteousness and decides to walk away and another who though he begins in unrighteousness has a change of concern, turns back to God, and does His will. If you're a Christian here today, you know that you would sooner be judged by your repentance than your righteousness. You would rather be seen as one who has repented of your sin and been willing to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, than to say, I've been good enough for God to receive me. That is a foolish mirage. And you see, the only way this makes sense is because of God's plan to punish our sin in Christ and count the judgment of the cross as the payment for the sin of all those who will come to Him in repentance and faith. And so it's very important that we don't depend on our righteousness, but instead we see ourselves in the story of the first person who has set out in life in our own way and discovered that we needed a change of concern towards God and turned ourselves to Him and entrusted Him for, for repentance and faith. Entrusted our life to Him, asking forgiveness, receiving that forgiveness, and beginning to walk in the direction of His instruction and His teaching. So this is a powerful parable about repentance. As we come to a close, I want to think a little bit about this idea of repentance and help us then to think about what it looks like for us to live a life of repentance. The word itself in Greek, there are two words in the New Testament in Greek for repentance. The word metanoia and the word metamelomai. They basically overlap. They're, they're words that are used pretty interchangeably, although they have a, a little bit uh, of difference in flavor. 
You perhaps recognize the first part of the word, meta, which means, in this context, change. It means a change in form or in some regard. The word meta means change. The second part of the word metanoia comes from the Greek word for mind. And so the word metanoia in repentance in this way means to change our mind. It's a change in our root or core thinking about something. A change of mind usually results in a following change of behavior and life and decisions and values. It's not just an intellectual turning, but one that brings our life with it. A sort of way of saying once you turn the head, you know what direction you're going. And so repentance is this, this decisive change in our mind toward God. The word that's used here in this passage is the word metamelomai, and it means a change of concern. And we get this picture of, uh, of a change of mind and concern in every respect toward God. This is what repentance is. Now, that Greek wor- that Greek wor- those Greek words for repentance also have a corresponding Old Testament Hebrew word. In the Old Testament, the the pleas to repent, really that word means to return. So you can think about repentance both in terms of the change of direction, sort of spatially in our life, or the direction and purpose of our life. That feels a little more idea-oriented. But in the Old Testament, it keeps it rooted in a relationship. Because we're not just changing our philosophy of life. What we're actually doing is we're turning ourselves back to God. And so the Old Testament word has this emphasis of relationship. It's not just going from having the right ideas or the wrong ideas to having now the right ideas. It's having the wrong relationship to God. One in which we've shamefully rejected Him, cast Him aside, taken what He's given us in the gifts of creation and the strength of our life and used for our own purposes. And we've run away from God. We're like the son in this story who said, I don't care what you want me to do today. I'm going to go do whatever I want. Who goes and then has a change of concern towards his father. It's relational. I I don't want to do this to him anymore. You see, repentance has this relational element to it. I don't want to spurn God. I don't want to cast him aside. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to be changed by his words. I'm opening my heart to his leading. You hear that? Repentance is returning to the Lord. And so, it's more relational there than intellectual. It reminds us that God created us to thrive in the world that he made. But we turned away from his direction and left behind the garden of his care. So the change toward God is a return to trusting that his purposes and his commands are good. Repentance doesn't mean I will take God's forgiveness but stay out here building my own life. That's not repentance. It means a change of mind toward God and a return to relationship with him. He never left, we did. It means coming home. So, I just want to close by thinking then a little bit about what this looks like practically. First, on a big picture, you need to ask yourself the question. One of the most important things you can do in your life is to ask yourself the question, have you had a change of mind about the basis of your salvation? 
In the New Testament, we can think about initial repentance. This is the general turning of our life towards God. And then we can think about ongoing repentance, the ways in which God continues to teach and instruct us where we continue to respond in that pattern. Repentance is both the entrance into God's kingdom and it's the pattern of what it looks like for us to mature. More and more, we return to the Lord. We have our life shaped by him. And so I want to ask you the question, have you had a, had a change of mind about the basis of your salvation? You know, repentance is turning away from trusting in your own righteousness and goodness to trusting Christ's work for our standing with God. Right now, do you believe that the only hope of a relationship with God is because he's merciful and he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? And you're willing to turn from those sins that put Jesus on the cross and trust in his forgiving work through what Jesus has done. Is that what you're counting on? Have you come to him by faith? Have you stopped trusting in your own righteousness and had a change of mind about how you really can have a relationship with him? Have you repented? But when we think about examining our ongoing life, there's some other things we need to think about. Have you had a change of mind about the general direction of your life? You see, repentance is turning away from our will, turning away our will from sinful intentions toward obedience to God. Is your life marked by a turning away from your will as primary to desiring God's will to have rule in your life towards obedience to God? This is what it initially sounds like. Even when you don't want to, here's what repentance sounds like. Repentance is saying, I want to want to even if I don't want to. Have you been there? Have you started down the road by saying, I want to want to, even if I don't want to? We're complicated people, aren't we? We find in ourselves this struggle, but repentance says, I'm going to bring my, my will in here, and I'm going to entrust it, and Lord, I want to want what you want, and until then, I'm just going to stay right here near you and entrust myself to you. Have you seen this change in the general direction? I want what God wants for me. That's what repentance looks like. Another thing we have to ask is, have you had an actual change in regards to the activities and actions of your life that are sinful? You see, repentance is turning away, not just sort of in, in a heart saying, you know, I want better things now. <laughs> I want to want to, even when I don't want to. No, no, no. Until I want to, I'm willing to do what you say. You see, this is what repentance looks like. I do it even though I don't yet want to. Now, we don't leave ourselves there. You see, this is what it looks like to grow in maturity. We say, God, even right now as I see this struggle in me and I don't exactly want to do it your way, but I trust you as my good heavenly father who I've come home to, I'm going to begin to walk in this and ask for you to change my heart. But the activities of my life that you have said are out of bounds, I want, I'm going to submit them to you. And we're going, to, we're going to repent on the level of what we actually do, the things we participate in. And ask for God to change our heart. And so I want to ask you, when's the last time you changed some direction in the activities of your life because you recognized they were sinful? Are you walking in ongoing repentance? Or have you just settled that everything you do, everything you participate in, is just fine? How much do you desire to be in conformity to God's word? Have you actually 
experience change in regards to the activities of your life that are sinful. And then ultimately, we always want to ask, have we seen a change of heart? Have you seen a change of heart in some important areas of your life? You see, repentance, as it matures, it's a turning of our heart from sinful affections and joys toward a love for God and His righteousness. It's a seeking after God to work in us at such a heart level that the things that we used to not even find interesting, we now rejoice in. The things about God's righteousness and His holiness that sounded boring to us now are attractive. We want to live our life. We have a heart and desire. We say to God, I want to. I rejoice that I can walk in your instruction. See, this is what repentance looks like as it matures. We go from I want to want to, even when I don't want to, to I do it, even though I don't want to, to I want to. See, repentance has this fruitfulness that takes place in us, that deepens, because we need to be changed more deeply than we ever realized. So how about you? Do you see ways in which God is changing you or calling you to change? Have you been willing, like the son who said, I'm not interested in that, to all of a sudden make an adjustment and turn back and come home to the Lord, to go into his field, to entrust yourself to his instruction? Maybe the day needs to be the day when for the first time you turn from your sin knowing that God delights in repentance, is ready to receive you, and you receive the forgiveness that has made, been made available to you because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Don't, don't be like the son who hears these things, says they're interested in spiritual things, and then walks away from the Father. Hear this invitation and know that you are welcome to come home. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to, we're going to break the bread and we're going to take the cup and we're going to drink that. And it's symbolic of being gathered around the table of our Father. And as we think about that today, if it's your testimony that you have repented of your sin and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you can gather around this table rejoicing that you're willing to be shaped by the Father's instruction and teaching as you take the bread and the cup. That our lives are submitted to grow to be people who want to follow in the ways of Christ. If that's not you, I would encourage you to set all of this aside. Don't take the bread and the cup, but to go to the Lord during this time of prayer and call on Him for your own salvation. Confess that you don't have any righteousness worth trusting in. And trust that Jesus' death on the cross has paid for your sin. And God invites you to be forgiven because of what he has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time, and we pray, God, that you would work in those who are present. And Lord, each individual life right now, Lord, I pray that you would be working repentance into us. Lord, that if there are things going on in our lives where we need to turn and make decisions to walk towards you, I pray that you would give us the courage by faith to take the first steps. Lord, if there's someone here who's never trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, I pray that today they would turn from their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we gather around your table, help us to remember your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.